very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, a VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. Well, to listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do by now. Go to VeritasRadio.com and click on that subscribe button. You'll get your login immediately and you'll be able to listen to hundreds of hours of truth. Don't wait. Get the truth now. And if you want to get in touch with me, you will have a guest suggestion, want to be a guest on this radio program, or simply have feedback, I always love to hear from you. Click on the contact button of our website. Professor Artie Sixkiller Clark returns to Veritas with more UFO stories of American Indians who live off the reservation. One intriguing difference between the two groups there were more cases of physical evidence presented to back up their testimony of urban American Indians. As with the first book, we discussed not their encounters, but the recounting itself becomes part of the story. A professor emeritus at Montana State University, R.D. Sixkiller Clark reveals herself as part UFO investigator, part journalist, part therapist, and part friend. She walked with the individuals who told their stories. She listened, she questioned, and in the end, she believed. And she's already a veteran of this program, so she doesn't need a formal introduction. Her bio is right on her website. And she joins us directly from the state of Montana. Professor Artie Siskiller Clark. Welcome back to Veritas Artie. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's uh, We're in the middle of a storm here. It's, uh, we got snow predicted, so... We're all bundled up. You have snow predicted when it's 100 yes. degrees where I am. Well, lucky you. <laughs> yes, snow, and and uh, uh, right now it's raining, and it's 50 degrees, so. Well, uh, you have a landline, so hopefully that storm wouldn't cause uh, any problems with our conversation today. But, Artie, this is your third book, am I right? Right. What is the difference between these stories and the other books? Well, my first book, um, I focused on stories um, of uh, I had collected on the reservation. Um, uh, many of them, uh, I think the majority of them were elders. Um, the second book, um, I, um, years ago, when I was a teenager, I, I wanted to follow the in the footsteps of these um, 18th century explorers who had, uh, or who are regarded as the 
the fathers of American archaeology and and who discovered the ancient cities in uh, of the Maya in uh, in Central America and Mexico. And so I wanted to follow the trail that they had taken. And along the way, um, I gathered uh, the ancient stories of the Maya, and I talked to people about uh, current um, and contemporary stories uh, of UFOs and encounters. And this third book is about American Indians who live off the reservation, uh, who have as many encounters, if not more, than those who live on the reservations. Uh, but these are individuals, you know, uh, um, 78% of American Indians um, live in small towns or rural America or cities and do not live on the reservation. And a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, the majority of the people who live on the reservations are full blood as opposed to those who live off the reservation who um, uh, are not full blood but uh, are counted on the roles of, of American Indians and may or may not have uh, direct contact um, with their tribes and participate in ceremonies and, and so on. So this book was a look at those individuals. Uh, the majority of them were... Um, were perhaps more educated, and, and that is one of the reasons why many people leave the reservation is because they they go off to college and they get degrees, and then um, they can't apply them on the reservation. So they, or they meet somebody and marry somebody from a different um, uh, tribal group, or even from you know um, a different uh, uh, ethnic, ethnic heritage. Group. Yeah. yeah, and and so they just don't return uh, to live there, even though they may go back uh, on a regular basis and visit family and participate in events there. Now, that so, was news to me, Artie. That was news to me. Seventy-eight percent. I thought just a minority lived outside the reservation. But yeah, why did they, aside from marrying somebody from a different ethnic heritage, what what are other reasons that catapult these people from from leaving the reservation well you know back in the in the 50s uh there was a a, a plan by the government to terminate indian reservations yeah and and what happened is that they started lo- relocating um literally thousands of people uh, from the reservations to the cities and put them to work in automobile factories and different kinds of uh, places uh, around the country. Um, and that's why you go to a place like Cleveland, Ohio, that does, you know, that has this huge Indian center in Cleveland, Ohio, because of all these native people who were relocated. Um, same thing with Los Angeles. You know, you, you just go around the country and you see that uh, where they were relocated. Well, many of them, once they were relocated, uh, returned to the reservations. Others stayed because it was an opportunity for better schools for their children, uh, a, a good job, and and so and would go back and visit relatives, and relatives would come and visit them. So that's what started the whole movement of of uh, Native people off the reservations. And then, of course, um, uh, intermarriage started taking place on a, um, a grander scale than what had previously happened. And um, and today, with uh, so many Native uh, um, youth going to college, 
uh, and meeting people of other ethnic groups or meeting people of other tribes. Um, they may choose to go live, um, in, you know, in an area that neither one of them is, uh, doesn't, uh, where there is no tribal group, but in distance where they can travel back and forth. So that's really, you know, what has caused it. You use the term already American Indians uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to the most current term of, of Native Americans. Why? Right. Since we know the term Indian is a misnomer. Right. And, and uh, you know, I interchange it, but in my writing, I always use American Indian because, you know, um, uh, one of the, the difficulties uh, in, in using Native American is that um, uh, we're constantly confronted with people um, aggressively uh, saying to us, you know, hey, I'm a Native American too. I was born here, so That's I'm right. Native. Yep. And so for um, for those of us who uh, are are in um, uh, who were in academia, we decided that we would use the term American Indian. Now, not all uh, people in academia do that, but I'm one that chooses to do that because. Um, uh, I've had to deal with that uh, too frequently, and uh, and many people, as, uh, as leading Native Americans, have spoken out about this issue and said, "Hey, let's, you know, we refer to ourselves as Indian most of the time, and we are we consider ourselves American Indians, and and people are right in saying they are Native Americans because they are born here." So. Um, it, w- it was decided, you know, one of the, uh, the leaders of the group was a very famous, uh, journalist, Tim Gallego, out of South Dakota, who started the, the Lakota Times and, and, uh, a very famous, uh, um, um, American Indian newspaper. And, and, you know, he was one of the leaders of saying, hey, let's do this. Let's not call ourselves Native Americans. Let's call ourselves American Indians. Interesting. Now, let's let's begin with the meat of your book. Uh, you attended a barbecue, and you asked how many people have had an extraterrestrial encounter in 60%. Wow. 60% wow. of the attendees said they had. Tell us more. Well, you know, it, it, it was a it was a barbecue, just a group of friends up in the mountains getting together. At, uh, I have a cabin up in up in the mountains, and and uh, there's a little community up there, and and there were ten of us that got together, and and um, um, there was a visitor uh, from from Colorado who asked. You know, well, uh, what is your book about? And this was when Encounters, the first Encounters book came out. And I said, well, it's about UFO encounters. And this person looked at me and said, well, I've had an encounter. And there were two medical people there, doctors, and they said, both of them said they had had encounters. And then there was a, an engineer, um, from uh, he, I, well, I don't know where he calls home because he travels with oil companies all the time looking for oil, and spends most of his time in South America. And he said, "I've had numerous encounters in South America," and so, and then there was a graduate student who had had an encounter. And so, you know, I think what happens so often is that people just don't talk about it. Uh, I, I 
think that people are very quiet about what they've seen and, and, uh, um, uh, if they've had an encounter, uh, an actual encounter with an entity that they think people will laugh at them, criticize them, or think that they're, you know, uh, um, fantasizing or, uh, and, and of course there have been books about that saying, you know, well, you know, they're sleepwalking, they're, they're doing all sorts of things um, that make them think they've been abducted. And so they just don't talk about it. And um, and that was a good example, you know, of, of um, you know, and, and I challenge people to ask their friends, how many of you have had uh, um, an encounter? Uh, I couldn't tell you how many people, you know, uh, that I have interviewed and have recorded their stories who are not, um, native who are not indigenous, but hear that I'm collecting stories and come up to me and say, "Now I'm not an Indian, but I have a story I'd like to tell you, and I'd like, I'd like to get some feedback from you." And and so I, even though um, uh, my publishers don't think that uh, readers would necessarily be interested in reading about um, uh, non non indigenous people. Uh, I still collect those stories and listen to them, and I've heard some remarkable stories. And people will say to me, "Now I haven't told this to anybody else, and you know, and I don't. Uh, if if you write something about it, please don't tell who I am or where I'm from. You know, that kind of thing. And there's always that that concern that people will make fun of them, or they'll lose their job, or just all sorts of things that people come up with why they don't want their stories known. Well, it would be a pity to lose all those interviews because I can understand why the publisher, they have put you, and I hate to say this, but maybe in this silo where you focus on American Indians. But if you have so many stories, perhaps a book in the future for non-American Indian stories to be published. Well, and I may self-publish one one day, you know. There you go. Because, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I have a wonderful publisher, uh, Anomalous Press, you know, and and Patrick. She is my um, my editor, and I just really, but um, and if that doesn't help happen, I I may just self publish one day because I know that other other um, uh, authors have done that uh, who are in the field. They have uh, published with um, well known uh, presses, and then uh, for some reason decide to self publish, and uh, so you know I I could do that. And I may do that in the future. Do you think, Artie, that at least the perception out there is that there's a preponderance of cases with American Indians or indigenous people around the world, for for that matter? Is that a, a wrong perception, or is it true that we have more encounters with indigenous people around the world more than other ethnic groups? Well, I think that... that um, um, it's not necessarily indigenous groups, but it's where you live. I think if you live in a more rural, rural or remote area, you're more likely to have these encounters than you are if you live in cities. Um, simply because, uh, uh, I don't believe that, um, those visitors are particularly wanting to announce that they're here. Um, so I think that it happens more on 
on reservations and in rural areas simply because, you know, if you landed, if you, if you uh, abducted somebody in Chicago or New York, there'd be a lot of witnesses. If you abduct somebody in, in uh, Belfry, Montana, <laughs> there's not likely to be anybody to see you. You know, is that's just the, the way it is. And, um, and I don't know why I said that because I did get a letter from a lady in Belfry, Montana telling me about uh, an event that happened to her. Um, and, and so, you know, these are, are, I think this is probably part of the reason I just don't, don't believe that they want to announce that they're here or that they want it commonly known. I mean, I've even been told by people that, that the aliens have communicated to them uh that uh if you re- if you tell anybody about this then um nobody's going to believe you anyway that's right plausible deniability now yeah. i wonder already if if in the era before the internet people would have been more open and motivated to share their stories than today and i say this because now with social media you know, a photograph or a story can be published for the world to see. And many people may not want their stories out unless they remain anonymous. Did you, did any of your witnesses express this concern? I had a lot of people say, you know, I don't want to be on social media, particularly with this book. And of course, I'm not on social media. I refuse to be pulled into that, that, uh, uh, you know, I'm not interested in in being on the internet. People have told me, "Well, you'd sell a lot more books." Well, I don't care if if that's how I have to sell books. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on any of these things, and I don't intend to be. Um, and I and I I tell them that you know you won't appear on Facebook with me because I'm not going to be there myself. Well, you may not be, Artie, but your name is indirectly all over the place. Know. You know that. I know that, but that's that's beyond my control. But as right. far as having my own space there, I don't I don't have that. Um, and uh, you know, I and I don't go online and look for myself either. Um, I'm, I I don't go and and listen to the podcast. I don't go there and listen to any of this. Uh, and I'm sure that there's probably a lot of negative things out there. But you know what? I've got too much living to do to worry about what others say. And my uh, my professional career is over. I'm retired and retired with dignity and respect. And uh, and this is something I'm doing not because I intended to do it, but um uh a, a few years ago uh, about 7 8 years ago maybe it by now um i was asked to come out of retirement after i had retired at montana state university and to um conduct an evaluation of a tribe um a tribal uh federal grant that had been issued for like 5 million dollars and the government wanted me to go in and do this evaluation and um it was required by the grant and it was a five-year project and i would have to commit to it for five years and i took the training i visited the reservation and then uh the last day i was on the reservation i had a, a luncheon with a group of women who who um um some 
there during the during the course of the luncheon, the a term of uh, UFOs came up, and and I, um, I I started telling them some of the stories I collected. And this one lady said to me, you know, what are you going to do with those stories? And I said, well, I probably will, they'll probably just be destroyed once, you know, I pass. And she said, well, you have a responsibility to tell these stories because it's part of our oral history and it's a part of who we are. And I thought a lot about that. You know, I had this huge contract in hand. All I had to do was sign it. Uh, and I would be reimbursed for my trip to D.C. I would be reimbursed for all the costs I had spend, expended. And I thought, well, you know, I spent my career doing things like this, my professional career, and maybe I should write this book. And so that's how it all began. Um, and and I'm doing it because I do believe that it, it, these stories should be told. Well, and tonight so, we have plenty of stories that we're going to tell. What is the universal highway or portals? Well, Tom talks talks about that in chapter one. Um, um, he's a, Tom was a a man that I encountered uh, on my way to the writing on the stone uh, provincial park uh, across the border from Montana up in Canada, and. Um, I had heard from one of my graduate students that if you you stand in a certain place in this, at this park and you step across, that people have said that they step into uh, whether it's an alternative universe or whether it's a different time or whatever, uh, but that this happens. And and he brought me this uh, this account of this this man it was a um, a non-believer, a, a person who didn't think any of these um, Indian stories were true, and so he went there himself to discover if that was true, and and stepped into a time when uh, it was like it was in before the white man came, and 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 was actually in an Indian village, and became a believer, and then uh, told about it, and uh, and. John had brought me this article and said, you know, here it is. So after I retired, I thought, you know, I'm going to go on these uh, these trips throughout Montana, and I'm going to visit these places that I've heard about from students and from friends and from um, other individuals and see if I can find this place. And so on my way there, I stopped to take some photographs, and this is where I encountered Tom. And um, Tom began to tell me a story. He was camped out along the this this special place that I had stopped to take some photos. And um, he began to tell me a story about the Universal Highway, which he says is a... There are portals all over the world where you once once the Universal Highway opens up, once that portal opens up, that you step inside and you can travel wherever you want to go. All you have to do is to think where you want to go and you can travel the Universal Highway. But it's unseen, and and uh, nobody can see it until they are at that point. And he began to relate to me the story of being in Iraq. Um, and uh, he said they no more had landed um, in the country when when uh, they were shipped out to a to a village where uh, reports had had come in that uh, 
Saddam Hussein was hiding there. And so they were shipped out to find him. And, of course, when they got there, it was a, uh, an ambush. And he said, uh, you know, he, as he was searching for some kind of protection, and he stumbled into this vacant building, and all of a sudden this whirlwind came up, and a big tunnel opened up, and there he was, and a, and a star visitor was there, led him down this long tunnel and told him they would take him home. And when he told him, well, he couldn't leave his his uh, uh, his comrades, they were quite shocked at his loyalty because they had offered him safety. And when they told him if he changed his mind, they would be back the next day. And I said, well, did you go back? And he said, oh, I was tempted, but I, I, I stayed the course and completed my tour of duty. And he began to tell me about traveling, that he had traveled the Universal Highway other times and how they're located in different places or around America and the world. Um, and I was telling him I had run across a, a man in Hawaii, uh, uh, Maui, who had told me about a Universal Highway. And he said it was by this waterfall and and we went there and camped out, but it never, the portal never opened. He says there's one in Arizona, one here in Montana. Well, hold it, hold it, because I, I wanted to ask you if you were familiar with, it, the actual name is Portal. It's a small town called Portal, Arizona. And I believe the quote-unquote portal is inside of a reservation. I've been told that during monsoon time, which is right now, it's the right now it's the tail end of monsoon season, that when there's lightning, Sometimes this portal opens. And where is this supposed to be? This is southern Arizona, probably about an hour, an hour and a half from where I am, south. Is it in the mountains there? Is it is it in the uh, Superstition Mountains or where? No, where is no, no. That, uh, the Superstition Mountains are more cent- southern Phoenix area. But this is southern Arizona, very close to the Mexican border. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yep, I've heard of stories uh, of people he, who who put yeah, a he, who put a chicken, and the wire gets cut. The chicken doesn't come out. I was even tempted of going down there with a drone, and take the drone inside during that time to see what happens. Maybe I need somebody like you with me. <laughs> why not? That's what you need to do. You know, um, that uh, he said there was one in Chinle. And there's one in, in, uh, uh, near Sedona, not in Sedona, but near Sedona. Um, and it told me of, of various sites around the, around the country, you know, where, and then, you know, uh, obviously there's one in Iraq. But he said it used to be that what he's been told is that at one time, all people knew this, but that they simply forgot it. Well, take a look at uh, Ayumarca, which is uh, in Peru. They have these doors engraved on the side of a mountain right. stone. And you ask the, the local ones, and they nonchalantly tell you, oh, yeah, those are portals to other worlds or dimensions. And, you know, when do they activate? Well, they have been inactive for quite some time, but you require certain conditions for it to open. So these doors are all over the place. Right, and and I'm familiar with that one. I've been there, you know, and 
and you can feel the energy if you go up to that window and you touch that. You can feel that energy. But is it true that some people say that sometimes you can go in, but you may not come out? Well, I guess that some people go in, and that's their choice not to come out. I don't think anybody has ever I've, has ever gone in and wanted to come out that wasn't that wasn't able to come out. Um, I'll tell you, I told my my daughter, my nine year old daughter, about this place in in Portal, and she was amazed by it. And when I told her that I wanted to go there, and I told her that. Sometimes people don't come out. She started crying, and she prevented me. Oh, yeah, me. that was. She scare told me, her, "Don't yes. you ever go there, then." Yeah, yeah, that would scare her. I don't believe, uh, from what I've been told by various people who have walked that highway or have gone to that hi- who've entered that highway, that you're ever denied exit. Um, but a lot of people who go there choose to stay instead of coming back to this world. You know, Are there any testimonials from people who have gone and come back and report what they have seen? Any messages from the "quote unquote" other side? Well, I don't know. When you say the other side, I, I, I think you're talking about the the world of the dead. And no, no, no that's how know, I said "quote unquote." I meant, you know, from the other wherever that place might be. Could it be a different dimension, a different location? Well, you know, Tom, when he talked to me. Uh, talked about, you know, visiting other planets, uh, visiting other places on Earth, uh, so that, that, uh, um, you know, as, 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 that's all I know, you know, is, is that it, it has, you have the ability to say, I want to go. I asked him if I could go with him, and he said, well, if you're here when the portal opens, I'll take you. Um, and he said that he had gone there once when he was a child with his with his grandfather. Was he upset when he found out that you were recording him? No, he said he knew. He said he knew. You know, I was doing it for my own protection because I didn't know who the stranger was here in the middle of the woods. You know, and all of a sudden I'm just confronted with his this man that that comes out behind a rock and so at first i was i was a little bit frightened uh so i started recording it because i thought well if something happens to me maybe they'll find a safe recorder yeah because you stay there until two o'clock in the morning and he even told oh, yeah, you hey stay you know, with me yeah and he uh he was nothing but a gentleman you know one of the things that that uh i'm often asked by female interviewers is have i ever found myself uh in danger, and I really never have, um, you know, not from anybody I've encountered or anybody I have, um, I have interviewed. Uh, I've received nothing but total respect from from all the people that that I've interviewed, and um, you know, there have been situations where you know, and I was in in uh, Mexico a few years ago. I was down on the. Uh, on the Gulf Coast and was confronted by, uh, came upon a roadblock with hooded federales and a machine gun pointed at me from the back of a, of a flatbed truck. Um, and, but they were looking for a drug cartel and not for me, you know, so they, after a, a short visit with them, they let me go. Um, but they searched my vehicle to make sure I wasn't transporting drugs. 
Um, but, you know, I've, I've encountered things like that, but never felt myself in danger from, uh, but I'm also cautious, you know, in foreign countries, I always have, um, somebody with me I believe I can trust and, and, uh, that will look out for me and has my back, you know. Are most American Indian tribes already aware of this universal highway or portals? That I could not answer. All I know is that Tom told me that one visitor came through and he took them, he took them with him and they went to the Dakotas, Wyoming and Mon- throughout Montana to the different reservations and there, uh, participated in ceremonies and different sorts of things and that, uh, uh the, those who, that he met and who participated in ceremonies were people who accepted him and knew who he was, that he was a star traveler. Do some of these witnesses stay in touch with you and perhaps uh, update their stories or, or oh, yes. expand? Yeah. Uh, all I, almost I say all I have to do is think of Tom and he shows up at my doorstep, you know, saying, what's for dinner tonight? You know, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I do stay in touch with a lot of them. In fact, I'm, I'm going to be going down to, uh, I'm kind of doing a Southwest tour. Someone is helping me with this, but I'm going to be spooky, speaking at, uh, in Las Vegas at their, uh, MUFON, um, meeting. I'm going mm-hmm. to Arizona. I'm going to be in Phoenix speaking. And when are you going to be in Phoenix? Maybe I'll drop by to say hello. I'm going to be in Phoenix December 3rd. Huh, okay. At the MUFON meeting, and I'm going to be in in um, um, Las Vegas December 1st, I believe. And they're working on Tucson, uh, Albuquerque, and Salt Lake City. So we'll see how that works out. But I do intend to be in Las Vegas and in in uh, Phoenix. I love traveling through the Southwest because then I can also stop by and see friends who have told me stories and. Maybe I'll hear more stories or somebody will hook me up with somebody else. And so I like to do that. So I'm planning like a, maybe a two or three week trip. Maybe, maybe you can come with me to the portal. Maybe we'll come in and out. Maybe. Right. (laughs) I'd love to know where that is. Now, the next story is about someone who, no, hold on. I don't want to skip. Do the extraterrestrials have an, an interest in copper? Tell us about Bo and his four corner story. You know, Bo is somebody that keeps in contact with me regularly. Uh, um, he was a, um, his mother was Navajo. His father was a, a white teacher who had gone on the reservation and had married. Uh, he was teaching there and he met, uh, Bo's mother and they were married. And then his father, um, um, was killed and, uh, in a car accident. And he, uh, then of course was drafted and went to Vietnam. And when he came back, uh, he opened this little garage. Um, and, um, I, my Subaru, uh, I was stranded on the highway. Uh, my uh, fan belt broke. And, uh, when I called for help, uh, his, um, uh, wrecker came and picked me up. And as, and as I was, driving uh to his to his little garage i asked the rec- record uh driver a- about the story that had taken place um about the ufo's appearing over, over 
you know, and all the, 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 the stories that have been told about that. And they had appeared for, I don't know, two or three days. And I asked him who I could talk to about that if he knew anyone. And he said, he said, well, it did happen. And he said, you know, you can go the, uh, to, uh, um, check the the newspapers and I said well I'd already done that he said well a lot of the stories that happens around here are never told and so he began to tell me about this incident that happened at Four Corners well when I and he said Bo would know all about it this this mechanic and so when I asked Bo about it he said well it really didn't happen at Four Corners Uh, but he said I was on my way to Four Corners for a a ceremony honoring veterans and his wife had recently passed and he would go up into the mountains because the two of them used to go up there with their dog and they would camp out over the weekends and and um uh he he said it was his way of mourning you know of his loss and he had gone up there uh on his way he was going to go the next day to the ceremony in four corners and when he got up there uh, he said, you know, he cooked dinner and he and his dog were, he was playing his guitar and singing cowboy songs when all of a sudden the, the sky went dark and, and he said that he was looking up at the sky and on the edges he could see stars and everything else was just black and he saw the biggest UFO he has ever seen in his life, he said. And so he he uh, watched, and as these smaller crafts started coming out and going in all directions, he said. And he said, then the this huge ship was gone. And um, after uh, you know, after a while, he just went back, went to bed. And the next morning, he they had breakfast. He and his dog, and he headed out for the four corner ceremony, and. And he said, just as he came around this bend, he said it was a sharp bend and, and like on a, like kind of a canyon row with a, uh, he said there was one of those spacecraft parked. And down below was an abandoned copper mine. And he watched as these, uh, creatures were going into this abandoned mine and bringing out what appeared to be samples and they would put them on a conveyor type belt and then these other aliens would um, inspect them and then they would either toss them or they would let them go into they would send them on this conveyor belt that went into their spacecraft and he said it was an abandoned copper mine he was very concerned about this well then uh he watched until they were gone, and then he continued, was going to continue on his trip. And he said, he, as he got closer down the, the mountainside there where he was, he said there was another craft and it was drilling into the soil and taking samples of soil. Um, uh, he, he wasn't sure how far down they were going. And he was just, so convinced that something other than normal was going on. So by this time, uh, he watched them until they were gone. And by this time, he said, you know, it was too late to go to the ceremony in Four Corners. So he decided to spend another night. 
he went back to his campsite and he said the next morning he went to both sites where he had seen these craft and he said there was absolutely no evidence at all that they had even landed there. He said all the soil, there were no prints, there was nothing in the sandy soil. And, um, but he maintains a watch every night and there are people apparently who have joined him who believe that, you know, that we are under threat, that perhaps they're, you know, they're just, um, uh, we have things they want and they're exploring where they can find them. It's interesting so you mentioned the bowls of light because, you know, I, maybe one day I'll meet this person. This person, I presume, is still alive, right? Oh, yeah. He calls me every Friday. Well, uh, if you want to put in touch with me, and the reason why I say this, a number of years ago, and folks, you've heard me mention these photographs that I've had for years, ever since I started this radio program. Some Somebody from Switzerland has provided them to me. And every time I go to a conference, I'm allowed to show them to researchers and so on. And what you're describing, it's pretty much more or less exactly what I see on these images. These balls come out of a bigger object and they scatter. And some of these images show them drilling into the soil, almost like they're taking samples. And even in one of the images, they're dematerializing this person's car. Unbelievable images that I'm not allowed to to disclose or to share yet. So, Mr. P, if you're listening, maybe uh, it's been too many years. Maybe we can talk about probably discussing this story more and, and releasing this this to the public. But, of course, that's up to you. Anyway, please proceed. Well, I hope to see him on my trip down to the Southwest this time. Sure. Um, uh, you know, he he's definitely one of the people I'm going to stop and see and spend some time with because he's he's told me that if I, you know, the next time I come back there that he's going to take me to those sites and show me, you know, the area that, that uh, where the drilling was going on in the abandoned copper mine. Is he close to Arizona? Pardon? Is he close to Arizona? He's close. Okay. Because we have plenty of copper mines here. That's why I asked. Uh, he's close. <laughs> <laughs> we have copper I mines. I promise that... not to identify where he's from. You no, know? that's fine because we have copper I mines. Will very. I to him and I will give him your name and your contact information. And um, he's he's a very skeptical man. Um, he's uh, I'm not. I shouldn't say skeptical. I should say very cautious man. He he believes that the. Uh, that the government isn't protecting us, and uh, uh, he's fearful that what I do, you know, the government will will shut me up. Uh, there's just many things that you know um, that he's he's very concerned about. No, I hear you. I hear, you. and we have copper mines in Bisbee, in Oracle, very close to where I am. So, well, hopefully, we can meet in the future. So, uh, whatever I happened then. Whatever happened then with these, why do you think they need to have these resources? Just like we would need them if we had to visit another planet or plane to, to extract well, you know, minerals? I thought about that a lot. You know, when when we went to the moon, we obviously took samples, right? Um, but well, we are told that we went to the moon. Right. But, uh, well, I choose to believe that. Yeah, that's <laughs> you fine. Know, maybe it's not true. I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, but um, hopefully we were there. 
See, um, just one quick parenthesis. As, a, as somebody who comes from academia, don't you find it strange that it's going to be almost 50 years since we went to the moon and we have not returned? And every single human accomplishment we have been able to commercialize, the plane, the car, and you would think that by now we would have space tourism, hotels, hospitality in, uh, on the moon, and we're, we haven't returned. Don't you find that strange, Artie? Well, I think we 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 spend too much at war <laughs> to ever be able to do anything on the moon. You know, I think that's where our money is spent. You know, financing war. Um, yes, I do. I I don't know about hotels and tourism on the moon, but I certainly would think that we would have some kind of research facilities and yeah. and places where scientists and and uh, you know, could could live and work. Um, well, there are pl plenty of billionaires on this earth that would right. love to take a trip just to to take a look. They don't even have to land, or you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, uh, you know, but as far as you know, I, well, and I think that's what the privatization of of space travel is going to be, you know, the billionaires are going to get to go see it, you know. Well, they haven't been having too much luck lately. Every time SpaceX or some of the others start something, you know, every every other try, they fail. It would happen to the latest rocket and some, even, even executives from SpaceX are speculating that something, a force, maybe a UFO, acted upon that rocket and made it explode, but that's that for a different interview. Now, the next story is about someone who met his wife on a UFO. Tell us more. Oh, yes. Um, uh, an interesting story. Uh, uh, he told me that, that from the time he was a little boy, you know, um, he had been abducted, and he, he told me that he was abducted with other children. And... And when he was uh, on a spacecraft, he saw this girl, and he knew immediately that she was going to be his wife. Um, he said that um, uh, most of the children that were on on the ship, there were only, a, I think, two or three other boys that seemed to be aware of what was going on. All the rest of them seemed to be totally oblivious to what was happening to them. Um, and then he said that... Um, he knew that she was to be his wife. Uh, years later, when he was a, a, a young man in high school, a senior in high school, he actually met her at the Denver powwow, which is, you know, one of the big powwows of the, in the nation where, um, all tribes come together there for that powwow. And, uh, I've been there and it's huge, you know, and he said that he saw her. And they did marry after they graduated from college, uh, the two of them. And and um, uh, he said that when he told her he met her on a UFO, uh, she didn't believe him. But when he described for her the dress she was wearing, she went over to this footlocker and she took this dress out. And she told him the story that this dress she had, her father had bought it for her when she was a... Uh, a little girl for a birthday present and she wore it the day of her birthday party and then she only wore it one more time and that was to her father's funeral and then she packed it away 
and she couldn't believe that he could describe in extensive detail what this dress looked like. And, uh, and she, she herself is a believer. Uh, and he talked about repeated, uh, um, abductions. And I asked him about her and he said he wasn't familiar with whether she was being abducted or not. And she doesn't know it if she is. So that was a, an interesting, um. And this individual is that you, you interview, they're, throughout all walks of life, the Iraq veteran, in this case, Colt, was a promising doctoral student. Then later on the show, we're going to be discussing a physician that you bumped into when you were visiting a relative of yours in, in North Carolina. These are people that don't gain anything but telling these stories. They're not expecting any reward or any fame, right? No. <laughs> they want complete anonymity, you know. Um it's it's uh it's not and i think that without that that guarantee they would never tell the stories because they are just very concerned about uh people knowing what's going on so whatever happened with colt what what do you mean whatever happened to him so they got married any yeah, more they encounters got any more uh, encounters? Well, yes, he's had a lifetime of encounters, and he's still still going on. That's incredible. And, and is this intergenerational? In other words, do you do you know if this happened to his parents? Because I've heard that once they marry, then it happens to the children. Once you get married, the other person hasn't had any experiences. Now they do. Has the wife had any experiences? He says she has, but he doesn't know if it's continued because he says when they take her, I may be asleep or I may not be here, but she has no recollection. But remember when she was a child, he said that that, uh, she doesn't remember anything that happened to her. Um, One of of the, uh, more than one of the people I've interviewed tell me that um, about, 80, 90% of the people who are abducted don't remember it. Though others do remember it, and they are the ones that are a threat to uh, the, the space travelers um, uh, because they are operating under anonymity. They don't want the, uh, the Earth people to know that what they're doing. And those who do remember when they, when they realize that these, that these individuals are not, uh, uh, succumbing to their, you know, the, uh, the drugs and the things that they're giving them, uh, to forget, uh, they tell them, well, you know, uh, nobody's gonna believe you anyway, so you can tell it all you want, but nobody's gonna believe it. So only about 10 to 20% of the people who are taken on board have no recollection and of course that's what enters in when people start having nightmares and start feeling um depressed or anxious and who go to a counselor and that's when it's discovered that you know there's a lot more of what happened to them than what they are you know hidden in their subconscious from the stories you've gathered through the years have you had anybody mention to you that they were perhaps abducted by 
extraterrestrials, let's just label them that way, and also by our military, military abductions, myelapse? You know, uh, I've only heard of, you know, abductions by, by star people. I've, I have asked them, you know, uh, when they've had repeated, uh, uh, abductions and, and did they see any, uh, uh, any other humans on board? And I have received information that, um, on occasion people do see other humans on board, but they have no opportunity, uh, to talk to them or choose not to talk to them. Uh, but those humans seem to be cooperating with the, um, with the aliens. And I've asked them if they were in military uniform and they said no. Uh, didn't see anyone in military uniforms. Reason why I ask you is because I've had some people that I've interviewed who mentioned they have been abducted by, call them aliens if you want, and then shortly after, they're abducted by the military. And they remember that. They remember them coming and taking them in a just plausible deniability. Let's say you're the government and you want secrecy. And then I know that Artie was abducted yesterday. Well, I send my people. We abduct you. Uh, we take him to perhaps an underground base. And we try to find out what happened so you can tell us and then use oh, the use chem you see where I'm coming yeah. from. I use yeah. chemicals in order for you to forget. That way I don't have to confirm that we are aware of extraterrestrial visitation, but we're still we'll know what's happening. Make sense? You know, I wonder if the government needs to do that. I think if the government is involved in all of this, they probably know what's going on anyway. Uh, you know, I just can't imagine that the government comes and abducts them and gives them some kind of true serum, but maybe that happens. Nobody has ever told me that. Absolutely no one has ever told me that. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, that's really news to me because I haven't, I've never heard of that. Um, what about, uh, well, you know, the stories of Linda Moulton Howe and the high strangeness happening right. since the 1960s, I, I believe. That, no. What do you think? Have you had any any of these stories tell you what these mutilations may be all about? I have had people talk about mutilations and of uh, abducting animals uh, and performing some kind of tests and surgeries and all sorts of things on them. But nobody has ever told me what they what they think it's the about. purpose. Yeah, what the purpose is. Um. So I have no idea. That's fine. Um, you know, you would th you would think that if they were if they were that intelligent, they would, you know, why would they go about operating on on animals? But then there must be some reason, something specific. Um, I did have one person tell me that that uh, there are different chemicals that are are elements in. In, in animal and human bodies that, that help them, um, in the development of a food source. Now, I don't know what that would be, but he believed that was one of the, the reasons for the various abductions. So some researchers have mentioned that a lot of these the mutilations began around the Trinity testing ground area in New Mexico after the nuclear testing. And whether it's the government or aliens, we don't know. But the mutilations could be to extract certain parts of the uh, cow's body to examine. 
how they have reacted but, to know, the new I, I, radiation. In my book, I tell the story of that deputy sheriff who who watches these lizard-like creatures go right. over and 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 literally mutilate this this steer right in front of him and and uh you know i mean that's far removed from any test site that we know of you know um oh yeah yes that that's been discounted that the fact that it could be close to the test sites because these mutilations are happening all over the place yeah and uh you know he has no idea you know what was going on and and uh but he he saw it um observed it now, February 2015, and we'll take a break after this this case, a, a UFO crash on a south, southwestern reservation. This is in Manitoba, Canada. Donovan's story. What happened there? Well, uh, the, the UFO that cr- uh, crashed in Manitoba, Canada, you know, was so hidden by the Canadian military. People took photographs of it uh, as it entered the lake. Uh, it, it crashed into Lake Winnipeg and, uh, all their photos were confiscated. They said within hours, uh, the military moved in equipment and blocked any view of the crash site. Uh, tribal members were informed that they weren't allowed to enter or leave the reservation. Uh, actually it's, uh, in Canada they call it the reserve. And then soldiers reportedly went door to door telling the residents they were conducting emergency exercises. Um, and, and this is not the 1940s, like Roswell. This is this happened last year, yeah, right? 2015 on the Jackhead First Nations Reserve in Manitoba. Yeah. So you know you're talking about a a, a very current event, um, and then. Um, uh, you know, the same thing happened in, in the story I tell about the, um, uh, uh, that had, the story hadn't been told, you know, for all these years by somebody who actually witnessed, uh, um, uh, a UFO, uh, the, a crashed UFO and the military came in and covered the entire thing up. They, I mean, they closed the highways, they shut down the town, they went door to door and told people that there was a, a dangerous, uh, Bill, uh, and that they weren't to go outside because if they breathe, would breathe the air, they would die. And he said by the time they got through, you would never know anything had happened. But he and his brother saw it. And his brother actually died um, from cancer, which he attributed to touching the UFO. You know? Do you think the United States has its influence over Canada, Mexico, I mean, our surrounding countries, with with the secrecy that we have in Canada of going door-to-door and even threatening people who spoke about this. Do you think the United States is influencing them to keep their mouths shut, government oh, and I'm people? Sure. I'm sure. I'm sure that's going on. You know, I, I, you know, originally, you know, the whole thought was that, oh, well, you know, people would never be able to rationalize, you know, that other beings were created within the, the realms of Christianity. Um, uh, I don't know why that was such a, such a concern, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, anybody out there on another planet is not going to look like us. Um, they may be able to shape shift and make themselves look like us. 
you know, I've been told uh, by people that, you know, that have had contact with with space travelers that they can they can take the form of of anyone and anything. Um and that's what they do uh to move around on the planet. Well, we'll discuss later the case of somebody who crashed into a deer. The person right. got out of the car and the deer turned into a humanoid. But we'll talk about that after the break. And, you know, this case of, of Manitoba, when I look at, at the witnesses, at one point you were taken to Uncle Ralph, you know, the, the main witness's uh, uncle. He was the chief engineer at Tribal Electric, the electric company of the town, the night that you were for crash and shot off the electricity for half the reservation. So this is direct witness testimony, isn't it? Right. Right. Yeah, and they, they took me out to the site where it happened. They said that there was this huge, long, um, you know, where the the craft had skidded, you know, and just tore up the terrain. And when it came to a stop, and uh, it took out telephone poles and and uh, it was all blamed on a on a, um, a semi truck that hit a telephone pole that was carrying dangerous uh some kind of dangerous uh liquid or something and the fumes would kill people. And that's why they tell people to stay indoors. Stay indoors and and uh um um uh, and so it was all covered up. And he's actually was it Ralph or the uncle who actually described the occupants of that uh, craft? Yeah, well, it was it was his uncle, right? Because his uncle had had uh, had been there. He was actually his father had been there along with his uncle Ralph, and he was a boy when it happened. And uh, and then the the military came to their house and threatened them and told them if if you ever speak of this, you know, we'll take care of you. We'll take care of you, and we have ways to do it when yeah. nobody will find out plausible deniability, folks. Right. Well, we have so much more to discuss. You thought an hour would be going too slow, Artie? Well, one hour's <laughs> gone, and we have plenty more when we return. How can people buy the new book, More Encounters with Star People? Well, it's on Amazon. You know, just go to Amazon.com, type in More Encounters with Star People, and it's there. For sale, and uh, uh, I'm, I do hope you know that uh, your your uh, listeners know that uh, um, part of the proceeds from the book does go to a scholarship fund that I set up at Montana State University um, for uh, to assist um, American Indians in going to school, and it's not limited to any tribe. Anyone can apply, and um, and we've had a lot of success with that, and uh, a lot of uh, grateful individuals who couldn't have made it without. Because I initially set it up before I graduated, or before I graduated, before I retired, um, and and put in the the base uh, money, and then people have a lot of my re readers have actually contributed as well, so. I thank you for that, and, and also, you know, if you need information, just contact me. And if you read my book, write me and let me know what you think. Absolutely, and I think uh, you're very approachable, and I think this is why you're so, success so successful in having people 
come and tell you the stories because even though you're an academic, you really don't come with a list of questions. Perhaps the questions arrive once you're there, but you basically want to extract the information from the, the witnesses so that you can present their story as is, which I think is is great. But folks, so much more to discuss, so many more cases to discuss with Professor Artie Sixkiller-Clark, directly from Montana. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy.